Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Molo Sambunani, hello, how's it? Welcome to the IRR show. I'm your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty. And of course, I'm joined in studio by the wonderful other half of the show, Miss Sarah Khan. Sarah, hello, good morning. Good morning, good morning. And how are you doing today? I'm well, I think. I don't have a headache, which I did have yesterday, so <laughs> that's great. Uh, anytime we're in good health, Hashem is blessing us. <laughs> I'm happy to be on air, and I'm happy to be with you again, dear listener. It is another Tuesday. You're listening to the IRR show. As always, we'll begin the show with our uh, look at the week that was in the news cycle, with all the news, opinion, analysis that we think you should be paying attention to, which I hope by now you're finding on the Daily Friend website. That's dailyfriend.co.za. Remember, you'll find all the news, analysis and opinion on there. Sarah, it's been a interesting week, has it not? Um, some really topical issues. Let's begin in a very cold part of the world that had the world's elite, from the politicians to the business people, Davos. What happened there? What was the big takeaway? And who's Richard Quest? Okay. The big takeaway is actually a small takeaway um, in, 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 in real terms, but in South African terms, it was very important. Um, I assume listen, most listeners will know Richard Quest as the uh, economics finance anchor at CNN. He's also an expert in aviation and, and airplanes, mm. believe it or not. Mm. And it was really his interview with, uh, conducted by Bruce Whitfield of 702 on where South Africa was at in the global investment environment. And Richard Quest, when he's asked about the credibility of South Africa, Richard Quest said, what, what credibility? credibility? And, and this is from a man who loves talking. <laughs> and I think it was incredibly important to hear because in case we had any doubts about where we stand in the, in the global environment, he shattered them then and, then and there. And he basically said that he did not see politicians changing from a mode of interfering with airlines. And if they interfered with airlines, they interfered with pretty much everything Absolutely. else. And the real interesting thing and the, 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 the eye opener for me was when he said you have an existing government, which essentially over the last nine years has presided over the siphoning of trillions of rands from the economy where our SOEs or SOEs are in the doldrums. Uh, yet that same individual who's now the president remains in government and, and there's been no arrests. What's, what's fascinating is, is his five minutes or whatever of interview encapsulated everything that is wrong with South Africa from a point of government, governance and investment. Yeah. Because he said, basically he was saying, we're not fooled by the fact that you are saying you're going to change things and improve things and be the change. That's right. You were the destruction. That's right. And all the, all, what he's doing is he's really saying, we've got you, we've got your number. And we see what South Africans see, you know, don't think otherwise. Absolutely. Speaking about someone who we have his number to an extent, if I can do that <laughs> segue, is uh, a one John Hjope, mm. a uh, judge president in the Western Cape, uh, who's at loggerheads seemingly or will be at loggerheads with the uh, Judicial Service Committee. W- what's going on there? Well, I think that I would describe his loggerheads with the Judicial Service Committee as being very, very slow because <laughs> he, he was, he came up before the Judicial Services Committee about 2008 and it was a host of issues. One was complaints by two constitutional court judges yes. about trying to show 
favoritism towards uh, Jacob Zuma. And there have been a variety of others taking money um, for being on some retainer that was inappropriate or illegal or unauthorized. And it kind of went on and on. It's gone on and like this. So he's got almost like a, a potential rap sheet. Mm. It's huge. And it's trending on, what are we now, 12 years since this all started? Mm. I mean, some of the allegations against him are actually quite serious, from you know intimidatory tactics to write-out assault against yeah, other judges. I mean, what sort of... Uh, or rather, what sort of court um, system is he running in the Western Cape where other judges fear the man? Well, that's that's probably not entirely, you know, that's a personality thing. That's not yeah. entirely un, uh, unexpected. What is perhaps a bit surprising is that he again, in, a, in, a, in this recent inc- instance, tried to, persu- tried to get judges who would favor his line of, of, yeah. of, of uh, ju- uh, uh, judicial thought. And... So he's been actually complained about on this occasion by his deputy, um, Judge Goliath. And it's, the, the real question lies with, well, what is the Chief Justice doing? Because he yes. heads up the Judicial Services Commission and the, uh, what's it, the um, disciplinary committee yes. that would be a consequence. So the, what, the effect that it's having is that your judiciary is starting to get the reputation of not the last redoubt. Mm. Um, and, I mean, if you just remember the uh, Judge Mortala, the drunken judge who backed That's into right. wall and uttered a racial epithet, we knew very quickly that they were going to string it out for 12 years mm. to leave him in the position where he could get his pension. Mm. I mean, that is as... Grubby mm. as anything could possibly be, mm. and we're used to seeing it in the other in the other arms of the uh, government. Well, very worrying signs there when it comes to the rule of law in South Africa and people's adherence and respect and mm. um, for the judiciary. Let's move on, Sarah, um, mm. and look at uh, <laughs> an interesting one, perhaps here in in, in Gauteng, the Cooperative Governance uh, MEC Lebohang Maile mm. um, went into the media with much bluster a few days ago, say, "I have suspended the speakers of both uh, the city of Johannesburg." And the city of Pretoria, Otwane, um, you know, because they're obstructing, you justice. know, uh, you know, uh, justice uh, and uh, processes uh, yeah. and blah blah blah. A few days later, um, sort of with his tail between his legs, uh, you know, I'm actually withdrawing that decision to suspend them because of X, Y, Z. Sorry, what's and, going and you on? You know, there? what's funny and embarrassing about this is when you watch the performance. And given the ANC's record in local governments, you thought this is not going to end well, and probably going <laughs> to not end well fairly soon. And uh, it's embarrassing because. Mm. What it instantly means is that there were no grounds to start with. Yes. And, and that, that's just throwing a weight around and trying to do some sort of little bit of politicking Absolutely. and uh, grandstanding. It's, it's, it's a joke. What I found interesting was, uh, and perhaps he, he walked it back because maybe he realized the political significance of it and how it may have damaged him, is South Africans are pretty fed up mm. with politics playing out in front of the courts. Um, you know, because the DA obviously, once the, you know, the yeah. suspensions were made, immediately went to the media and said, look, we're going to take this uh, to, court. to court and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think at some stage, Lebohang, the MEC, sat down with his attorneys and they were like, dude, uh-uh. this is not going to work. You're going to get a bloody nose from this. Um, what's the lesson out of this? I think the lesson out of this is don't play politics when it's not on your side. Because the one thing you can, you've got to say about the DA is when they do go to court, they mostly win, mm. which means they've done their homework and the facts are behind them and the law is behind them. Mm. And it, it was, it was, it was almost um, games playing 101 uh, in the sense of Maile went in there with a strategy that hadn't been thought out entirely, mm. very public in a, in, a, in a series of very public spats. Mm. And he 
put his foot in it. I don't know if I'm mixing all my metaphors. Well, it seems to be the, the, the case with, with politicians lately, and I don't think Lebohang Maile will be the only politician <laughs> who necessarily does this. You know, this, this, this habit of coming out to bluster and saying, yes, you know, I'm the man of action and this is what I'm going to be doing, but, you know, I'm not really paying much attention to whether this is legal or not. I think we often forget that, you know, uh, Individuals in government operate and should operate within the confines of the law. And I think we've become accustomed perhaps to the big man politician who says, well, I'll do things, you know, outside of the law and, you know, better to ask for forgiveness than, than permission. Well, one kind of wonders what went on behind the scenes when the decision was taken, yeah. who he was consulting with, what which was fed to him. Um, I wouldn't. I don't know anything about the man. I do know the name. But uh, is he knowledgeable enough about his brief mm. to have gone in with the angels fear to tread? Mm. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's really, just, as you say, it, it just muddies already, already very muddy water. Mm. Again, uh, something to watch, definitely, dear listener, uh, because it, it speaks to the governance of the cities we live in. Uh, so if you're sitting in Johannesburg right now or uh, Pretoria, this is something you need to pay attention to. As I Perhaps, you know, we really do become rather sick and tired of, of the petty politicking that's happening in our councils. But this will be an issue that I think is an ongoing one. So, all right, let's move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to look at a, a one minister of health yeah. who, uh, you know, already has the South Africans, Continue the theme. you know, has ruffled feathers in South Africans by suggesting that he will nationalize all health care under a national health insurance. Um, and Essentially, in the process, if you read the bill, says, look, I'm giving myself the powers to appoint mm. this individual and appoint that individual, all these sort of layers of bureaucracy. And then when you test him on whether he's able to appoint people properly in real terms, we now find out that he's appointed his niece as his <laughs> chief of staff. Is that not the, the warning bells that we've been talking about? Well, it is a warning bell. I mean, uh, nepotism does ring bells, but, mm. but the nepotism here is on a grand scale. His, his niece is under suspicion of having been involved in the Mismanagement of over a billion rands worth of funds at the PRC. Yep. Now that is like a combination. That's like stirring a real a real pot. And and given the background to the fact that everyone is so desperate about that the NHI will not do away with um, with, with corruption. It will, in fact will be a fantastic source of corruption. Um, this seems really uh, somebody didn't think very hard about this one. And speaking about not thinking uh, uh, clearly about this, and as we head sort of the last thirty seconds towards our first ad break, the EWC mm. politicians essentially the ANC have come out and said, "Forget the courts. We want to be able to arbitrate who gets land and who doesn't." In other words, the executive is going to do the job. Now that is a breach of the rule of law. It's, it's, it would be absolutely stunning because it would be same, the same as Mkhize wanting to decide how and who and what gets treatment under the NHI. And it's that, it's that very distinct grab for power. Unless mm. there's a sort of a strange, other, there's a strange thing going on behind this that suggests it, it, it may actually help the direction change. It's very weird. It's very worrying. Sarah, we'll pick that one up in the last segment of the show because it is an important one. After the break, we have Mr. Nicholas Babaya from the Institute of Race Relations to talk to us about China and the coronavirus. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Molo Sanbonani, hello, how's it? Welcome back to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty, your favorite fat boy, and I'm in studio with the other half of the show, Miss Sara Gon. Sara, hello, hello, once again. Hello, once again, hello. Indeed, a lovely perky morning, and... um 
we have an interesting topic and a very interesting guest in the studio, Mr. Nick Babaya from the Institute of Race Relations. Yes, he morning. is a, um, let me call him a guru on all things China related. Um, and uh, we're going to have that conversation with him today about the coronavirus and really the implications of it in that part of the world. And uh, Nick, by the way, will be a voice that you will hear a lot of on the show, especially when we look at issues related to China and the trade wars and all sorts of international politics stuff that I know he's a absolute guru on that you'll enjoy hearing from. Remember, if you want to get involved in the conversation, give us a call in the studio number that's 010-140-3020 or send us a telegram at 061-895-1019. Or hey, if you're old school like me, then you still do SMSs. Well, hey, why not? Send us an SMS at 34519. Welcome to the IRR show. We're talking all things China and the coronavirus. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be here and good morning to the listeners. Very good to have you, Hermie. And um, let's begin with the more interesting, uh, or let's begin in, with the country itself, China, right? Before we get into the coronavirus and all that, set the scene for us. You know, this is obviously one of the most populous countries, if not the most populous country in the world. Its economy has been doing really well. A lot of the individuals uh, who live in that country now live in concentrated cities as opposed to what maybe historically were, yeah, you know, yeah. rural areas. Set the scene for us why um, a, a, a uh, should I call it a pandemic? Sorry, is it a pandemic yet? Not yet. Um, uh, but essentially, set the scene for us about China generally as a country. Yeah, well, I'm sure many more of your listeners will have gone to China now. This, uh, the relationship between South Africa and China certainly economically is very, very strong. I'm personally meeting more and more South Africans who have visited China before. And what you'll notice when you go there is that the number of people who live in a relatively small space is just absolutely enormous. And that's how they have cities like Wuhan, where this terrible coronavirus uh, broke out. You know, in terms of area, um, I haven't checked the data, but I'm sure it's you know, not far off from a South African city like Johannesburg or Cape Town. But in terms of population, you're talking about more than 10 million people. That's crazy. So that's very typical of a Chinese settlement is you have lots of people living in lots and lots and lots of high-rise buildings. I remember yeah. the first time when I arrived there, I felt like I was in the CBD of the city because I saw all the high-rise buildings. And then we kept driving. And then we kept driving for two hours, and the buildings didn't stop. <laughs> so really, that's what it's like. There are just so many people in a relatively small space. So there's lots of human contact, and that that's why uh, the government of China has had to put through very, very stringent measures to yeah. control this thing, because it's really a different environment to what we're used to here. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's – I think so, – and uh, oh, sorry. I think you've set the picture quite uh, aptly in terms of how concentrated cities can be, in terms of, you know, the number of people per square kilometer – Nick, talk to us then about the, the, the actual uh, mood on the ground when the news broke. Firstly, what is the coronavirus? Let's begin there. And how have ch- the Chinese like been receptive to it? Yeah, the coronavirus is a kind of respiratory disease. Uh, it's quite similar to SARS. I'm sure many people remember the SARS outbreak, which happened also in China, but then spread to many other countries in East Asia in the early 2000s. And because of that, there's a lot of sort of PTSD about that. When this first broke out, a lot of people was re- were remembering SARS. And yes. it had a really a huge impact on that East Asian region. Um, it broke out in the city of Wuhan. Uh, and there were a number of factors when this thing broke out that just made it a lot worse than could possibly have been. 
The first is that this past weekend was Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year, mm. also known as the Spring Festival. What's the significance of that? So that's the main big holiday in China. That's mm-hmm. when everybody goes home to be with their family. And it's actually the largest human migration in the world. Wow. Now, if you've been to China, you'll see they have a very, very advanced uh, transportation system intercity within cities. So there are just millions, hundreds of millions of people uh, mm-hmm. migrate within the country mm-hmm. to go be with their families. And likewise, a lot of Chinese from uh, who are living around the world also go home. I have some friends of mine who went home uh, for the Spring Festival. It's the main time where you go be with your family because mm. China, quite similar to South Africa, I think, has a, a thing where a lot of people may come from more rural areas, but then they'll go work in a city. And it's mm, during yeah. this time that they actually uh, can go home to the, to the other areas to be with their family. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. That's this past weekend. So it broke out just before that. And the second thing is the city where it broke out, Wuhan. If you look at a map of China where Wuhan is, you can check on Google Maps quick, just the location. It's right in the population center of China. Mm. So it's smack in the middle of the Beijing-Tianjin area in the north mm-hmm. and the Pearl River Delta megalopolis, which contains Guangzhou, uh, Shenzhen, and a whole bunch of other cities. And it's also not so far from Shanghai. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a very important rail link. And, I mean, that if you think about those two factors to combine together – when this thing broke out, uh, I think the authorities really got a bit of a skrik and they said, okay, we have to be very, very stringent in controlling this thing. So the scene on the ground there is intense. Businesses have uh, stopped working. They've extended uh, this uh, uh, spring festival holiday is one week. And I think if in some cases they've extended it another week oh, wow. just so that people stay inside and mm-hmm. don't go out. Uh, the busiest streets there, I've seen pictures from from WeChat, that's what people use to communicate, are just empty. Wow. So the the mood there is, is very, very um, – a lot of my friends are saying they feel like it's very, very intense. With that being said, the number of cases relative to the Chinese population is still not that much. It's mm-hmm. about 4,000, which sounds like a lot, but when you have – you know, cities of more than 10 million people, uh, relatively speaking, it, it hasn't gotten out of control yet. So I think we'll see in this coming, you know, the coming next two weeks how things go. So that's the scene at the moment. And Nick, can I ask, um, I understand that the the source of the virus seems to be located to a, a, an open market in the city. And more specifically, it's been sort of drawn down to the the eating of the consumption of a certain type of snake. Mm. Um now, uh, it's generally understood that chi- the Chinese have fairly broad, shall we say, broad, broad, broad taste. Yes. <laughs> um, isn't, I mean, it doesn't this sort of make it very, very difficult in the sense that you're really dealing with a, for what is it for people of everyday, per- maybe not quite an everyday purchase, but pretty much an everyday purchase, and it's a, the consumption of things. And it's wow. the consumption of food that's often been a problem in in, in previous outbreaks of, of different things. Hey man, Nick, just before you, you chip in, hey man, I've seen some really crazy stuff on, on social media. People like biting into frogs live and like <laughs> bats and well, talk to me about that culture also maybe as you, as you, yeah. as you tackle uh, Sarah's question. There's a, okay, the first thing just to say is that this is not, you don't go to pick and pay in China and buy a snake. No. Okay, it's not like that. <laughs> snake, <laughs> it's, it's, things like that are still generally uncommon. Mm. I mean, I was living in Guangzhou for six months last year. Guangzhou is, used to be called Canton. That's where the word mm. Cantonese comes oh, from. Oh, right. Now, within China, the Cantonese people, other Chinese people think, oh, no, they're the ones that eat all the crazy <laughs> stuff. Whenever I ask, what's the stereotype of Cantonese people? Oh, they eat anything. Yeah. Uh, but even I, I met a whole bunch of Cantonese people, and I asked them, have you eaten snake? Have you eaten this? Have you eaten that? And they're like, uh, maybe like once in my life. So oh, wow. it's, 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 a, it's probably fallen. It's, uh, the, the, that sort of thing has diminished yeah. as the societies become more sophisticated. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. So that, that's not, you know, it's not as common as you might think. Mm. Although, uh, you know, if, if you were to go try find snake in 
in South Africa. I don't know where you would find that. It would be impossible. <laughs> so that's that's the first thing to realize. But the second thing is that if you go to China, what you see outside a lot of restaurants, and funny enough, within supermarkets, is they actually keep live animals. Mm. Wow. And there's a, I think there's a very strong belief in the culture that freshness is incredibly important. And oh. certainly when, with, when it comes to the consumption of meat, that means you want to eat something as close to when it was alive as possible. And that's something I think a lot of us in South Africa uh, will find. Uh, but but we, we'd be a bit squeamish for that. Sure. Uh, but there's a very, very strong belief that, uh, for that. So, for example, this outbreak started at the Huanan Hai Xinxuzhang. So that's South China uh, seafood market in, in Wuhan. And that's the kind of place where they might have had a lot of live animals. Uh, one thing also about the food in China in general. Now, I've never had any problems personally, but the, the food quality and sort of safety with food is a bit mm. of an issue. Mm. A lot of Chinese people, when they come to South Africa, they say, oh, at least we don't really have to worry about the quality of food here. I know I won't get sick. Mm. Um, although I'm a little bit uh, – I'm not so sure about that because I think I got poisoned by a pie the other day. Um, but, but but that's another thing is the general, the, the quality of the food it can sometimes be an issue. I, I want us to segue in that direction, and it's, it's, it's a good thing you bring it up because – I was going to raise the issue of the, the, the Chinese government's response to this. Now, you know, in terms of the PR, they've responded fantastically, you know, in terms yeah, of... I would agree with that. You know, yeah. it, 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 you know, if you want to see the specter of big government in action, in terms of, you know, literally shutting down a city in, in, in a literal sense, um, then you've got to see what the Chinese government's response has been to this, including building hospitals in a week. Um, yeah. I'll let you sort of chip yeah. in on that. But before that, that's more the reaction. Let's, let's dig a little deeper on the Chinese government in terms of regulations around food safety and sort of things we were mentioning now. Um, is there a movement in China that basically says, look, if you guys are going to be the sort of statist government that you are, at least jack up when it comes to, you know, regulatory um, conditions around food and other safety and security, uh, safety and health and safety issues, sorry? You know, I'm not, I'm personally just not aware of that. Yeah. So I can't, I can't comment. But what I'll say though, Sisha, is that well, you may view the Chinese government as being like this, you know, it's the Communist Party of China, of course, that governs China, and this, you said, a big government or status. But, and, and in certain aspects, certainly they are. They're more overbearing than our government is here, although our government here certainly tries their best. Um, and, but what you must realize is that there are actually many aspects of life, oddly enough, in which there's far less regulation. Yeah. Now, the two things would be uh, small regulations about maybe like food safety. That would be the one thing. And the other thing would be workers' rights. So, like, I have never really heard of a trade union in China, mm. for example. Mm. There may be one. I just haven't heard of it. But then that's also how you can have a hospital built in two weeks. Mm. Can you imagine the reaction by Kosatu or something like that if we tried to do that? <laughs> My word. No. Well, I, I know ESCOM was trying their level best to block the news of that. Like, shh, shh don't say anything about it. <laughs> don't tell weeks. them. You don't know, give we, them ideas. We, 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 the boom took off before people had cars. we, 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 24-7. Yeah, that's Absolute, right. Absolutely. But 24-7 with full complement. It wasn't yes. a case of full complement during the day, less so at night. I want to come back then to perhaps the reaction um, of the Chinese government. And I want to talk, I want you to talk uh, us through the, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know what word I'm trying to use here, but maybe the, the psychology of, of government's reaction to an extent. And let me sort of uh, preface this. Yeah. Here in South Africa, if something happens, Generally, we accept that the state will respond relatively slowly um, and that usually there'll be some sort of lobby group uh, or pressure group or civic society organization that has to put pressure on government for it to respond timelessly. 
we don't see that in China and I want to add a little, another caveat here. Some of the videos that have popped up on social media um, are of a Chinese citizenry who are very confident in the state. I mean, there's this one video I saw where people are like, oh, why should we worry? Why should we be inside? Um, the Chinese government, government has got us. They'll protect us. Talk to me about that psyche. What, what is the relationship between the public and the state and, you know, its, its role in, in China? Yeah, so generally speaking, that is, that is true. Uh, but, I mean, I think... You know, that really comes because in the past, say, 20, 25 years, China has developed incredibly fast, and the sort of average standard of life of a Chinese person has improved a lot. And if you go there, you just you get the impression of a capable state. And I know we maybe that's not a word we, we like too much. But, I mean, that really – I think when you have that sort of trust – then immediately on the other side, the population will trust one more uh, in, in big crises like this. There's also the fact you must remember that, you know, all, co- all information is controlled there. The Internet is heavily yes. censored. So that's also a factor. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things uh, when comparing this outbreak to the SARS outbreak, for example, the SARS outbreak was uh, very controversial uh, because a lot of the information was sort of withheld and mm. kind of hidden away. And that was a lot of bad PR. Mm. It seems to me, and I'm not sure of this, but it seems to me now that the government realizes that if we actually are very, very transparent about everything, people have got apps on their phones and you can see exactly the number of cases in your province, Mm. in your city. I'm seeing screenshots all uploaded to WeChat. That actually makes the population a lot more relaxed Mm. uh, because when you know the truth, even if the the sort of truth is quite severe and it's quite a hectic thing to deal with, People at least know that they're being told the truth. So I think that's been the attitude during this uh, epidemic, and I think that has had a much more positive impact. And because of that, the sort of idea of trust comes. Now, mm. we don't have that in this country. Nope. <laughs> and we have, mean, a lot of, we have a lot of communication. <laughs> yeah, we just sort of – I mean, I saw a very, very funny Facebook post uh, about a year ago when – or uh, well, not a year ago. It was when Cape Town had its water crisis and we had load shedding. And some guy said, you know, if you're going to live in Africa, don't complain. Buy a bucky. Dig a borehole and get a generator and, and, just, always, and just do life. Yeah. It's like we have a very like self-sustaining attitude. Mm. Because of it's, that. it's quite an interesting thing you say because I, I would have thought that a, the communist government, the reason it can close down a city like Wuhan yeah. is because it is the type of government it is. Yes. But likewise, can you, you imagine if they tried to do that here? Not so much. Well, that's exactly the point. A, you, but you've got this now, this strange uh, um, set of issues. You, you've got the this, this, this state, a strong the communist government that can close down an entire city very quickly, not to mention build hospitals that will be ready by the 5th of February. Um, and you've now got an increasing pr- sort of level of trust because information is being allowed to flow around it. So it's actually, for, from a point of um, circumscribing the epidemic to some extent, um, it, it works. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, what, what Chinese people often tell me, and I always, I've, I've tried to talk politics in the past with Chinese people, but not usually to not much avail, uh, is it's, th- they always say things like, because China is a country like this, that's why our government mm. is like this. Mm. We understand, Nick, you guys in, in your countries, you've got a lot of freedom and stuff, but there's just too many people here and we have to have stuff like that. So I think there's a, you know, there is a, a degree of trust. I think a lot of that does come, you know, from the fact that information mm. is controlled as well, because mm. uh, there's a few things which I am concerned that the Chinese government is doing, which we can talk about maybe on a different day. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, because they have that control, they have the power to just say, okay, sorry, nobody's coming into the city of 10 million people. Mm. We could never do that here. Mm. Uh, but we also don't have as much of a need to do that. Mm. I think that's the big difference. Mm. The other thing that I really picked up on, which I, I found interesting, um, 
and I don't know how, how much of your involvement in it is, we obviously have, or rather, there is a large Chinese diaspora across the world. Yeah. Um, you know, the countries that really sort of have large populations are like America, Australia, even South Africa to a large extent. Um, there's large communities here. What's the chatter been like um, of, you know, people in the diaspora maybe worried about family members back home? What have you picked up in that regard? Well, actually, I think a lot of the people in the diaspora have gone home. Yeah. Because you must remember, it was the spring festival, so yes. they, they, yes. it was the timing was just exactly wrong. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, 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 but that's the whole thing. Mm. Is like, for example, the Chinese South Africans who are, who I know that live in Johannesburg, uh, they, they went home for the spring festival, and then while they were home, this thing broke out. Wow. So, yeah, I, I've just, I've been following and I've been getting a lot of my information from uh, reading the Chinese social media and it's all over the social media. People are putting out uh, notifications and, and stuff like that. And I think people are quite worried mm. because the attitude on the ground there makes it seem very, very serious. For example, a friend of mine uh, took a train from the one city to the other. It was not, wasn't a very, very long distance. And she said that while she was on this train ride, there were workers who checked her body temperature six times. Wow. This is not a very, this is like a couple hour train ride. So they're doing things like that. There's lots of checks. It's mandatory to wear those masks. I'm sure you've seen this. Mm -hmm. They're quite common already in China. It's sort of standard practice. If you're sick, you would wear one of those masks. It's more to prevent you from not infecting mm, other people. Mm. Now it's mandatory to wear those in, I think, most cities in China. Hey, Certainly man, a lot. You definitely don't want to be the person who coughs in a confined space that <laughs> looks you get from people in that train. Like, mm-hmm, we knew it would be you. Um, Nick, uh, uh, as we maybe whittle down to our, our first ad break, and we'll, we'll bring you back on, um, hopefully we'll have some comments and, and um, some uh, uh, messages from the public. But... When we do come back from the break, I want to sort of broaden the conversation a little bit to China itself. I'll bring in some of your personal experiences. I know you spent a lot of time there. You're fluent in Mandarin, which wow. is really impressive. Um, I'm fluent. Hey, man, more fluent than <laughs> me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and we speak um, together. But, you know, when we do come back, I want us to sort of speak about, you know, the Chinese society broadly. And I want you to set this, the case of, um, or really, I want the listener to understand why we're going to have you on here quite a lot when you talk all things China. So when we come back from the break, just uh, prepare yourself for that interesting conversation, and hey, get involved in the conversation. Remember, you can reach us from the studio number at 010-140-3020, send us a telegram at 061-895-1019, or hey, SMS me at 34519. IFM 101.9 MHz of life. Whoa, hello, welcome back to the IRR show. My name is Big Daddy Liberty and of course I'm with Saragon and um we were having a very lively, interesting conversation in here about um the coronavirus and really China perhaps as we now sort of broaden the topic to the country itself. And we're joined in studio by IRR writer and analyst um Nick Babaya, who is a I'll call him a fundi on all things China related really, because um you know he spent a lot of time there. Now let him talk about that, but he spent a lot of time in China. Um, fluent in the language, and yes, I will continue to say fluent because I've, quite you, true. I've literally heard you hold conversations in, in full on Mandarin. I was like, wow, that's impressive. Um, but Nick, let me come back to you and let's talk China now, just broadly. And let's move away from the coronavirus because you know th- there will not be a, a zombie apocalypse where you know that needs us to sort of um, respond to uh, people that are infected. Nick, China as a country, very interesting, very large population, very strong culture, um, but also very communist, and some may say communist in name only, but talk to me about your experience when you were in China. What brought you there, uh, actually? 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give a brief synopsis of my experience studying the Chinese language. Um, I started out at Rhodes University in uh, 2016 when I was in first year, and I actually just chose the, the – they have a Confucius Institute there. So I'm sure people have heard of the Confucius Institute. That's kind Confucius? of Confucius? Like, What's that? Confucius – well, Confucius was a, a famous philosopher in Chinese history. But the Confucius – I'm sure people have heard of, for example, the Goethe Institute mm-hmm. from Germany. It's If you want to study German overseas, you can go there. France has got the Alliance Francaise. Uh, I think Spain has got the Instituto Cervantes, uh, but China's one is called the Confucius Institute, mm-hmm. and they set up in universities around the world. So South Africa, I think, has got one, two, three, four, five, maybe, and then maybe a couple more smaller ones in a couple of universities. And the one at Rhodes University where I was studying is particularly good. We've, uh, for some reason, we've had uh, very, very good results. Um, so I started studying that, and I studied that for a few years. Um, and I visited China for the first time in 2017. I had oh, a wow. fantastic experience. Uh, yeah, in 2018, I had the, came number two in South Africa for the Chinese Bridge Competition, which was like a sort of proficiency competition. Oh. I went over there again. And then in my honors year studying Chinese, I spent one semester at Jinan University in the city of Guangzhou in the south. And that was um, like quite an amazing experience. So, yeah, Guangzhou, yeah, you want to? Now, I was about to say, speaking about the actual experience itself, you're yeah. in China now. You are studying there for a while? Like, on the yeah, yeah, one semester, program. yeah, six months. Um, Talk to me about the experience. Like, you know, you're obviously on a university campus there. Is it like our university campuses? Do yeah, you I, have the sort of, you know, rebellious youth spirit against? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next subject. But talk to me about that experience. It's very, it was very different and it was very difficult for me to get used to after having been at a South African university, particularly one like Rhodes for three years. Yeah. So the first thing to know is that at a Chinese university, a large, large percentage of the students stay in res. The reason for this is that rent is a huge expense in China just because of the population density. Wow. Second thing is that most res rooms have got more than one person. Mm-hmm. At the most, the cheapest ones will actually have as many as six people in those rooms. Wow. And I knew a couple of people who stayed in a six room, uh, a six person, sorry, a six person room. And yeah, shame, and I felt quite bad for them. But then four is more common. Mm. But the room size is, is not big. It was like the same size as my res room at Rhodes, but had four people in it, like wow. two bunk beds. Uh, I, I was lucky I had a two person room. And um, what is really great is that I studied at a college, which was, uh, my, at my college, it had the major of Chinese for foreigners. Yes. So it's really, I know this might sound like a strange thing, but for me, that was the most diverse place I'd been in my entire life. I always say we love to talk about diversity, but I was sitting in my class, and behind me, there was a guy from Thailand, and in front of me, there was a guy from Indonesia, and to my right, there was a Yemeni guy, and to my left, there was a Canadian. <laughs> and this place was really like a, a little United Nations, and you actually find that with foreign students at Chinese universities. It's because they come from just about everywhere on the earth. It is fantastic. In terms of the academics, it's much more like a high school kind of vibe. So mm. at minimum, I was at class from 8 until 12 every day. Whereas at Varsity, uh, at, at Rhodes, you would have like one lecture and then like two free periods mm. and another lecture. And it's like you just have so much free time rather. So they work uh, really, really hard. And it's much more like kind of more similar to what I'd say is school here. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and the other thing I would say is that they're far less forgiving. People fail. Well, you fail. Bye-bye. That's, so there's, there's no subs. No, you, well, I, you know, um, there is kind of a thing, a bit like a sub, but it's more like you can take that credit in the following year. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was the case at our university. But they're much more strict and they're much less forgiving is what mm-hmm. I'd say. Just one more question from me. Um, you know, you talk a university campus here in South Africa, um, and immediately you gravitate towards, you know, these militant and in inverted commas student organizations that rebel against the government. I mean, Fees Must Fall, for example, took its march eventually. 
um, to the heights of, of South African government and challenged it. Do you have a similar streak in Chinese universities, even if it's a underground one? No, um, you know, that's an interesting question. As far as I saw, I don't think that there are any political student organizations on Chinese universities, aside from the one, the sort of youth league of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm-hmm. So that kind of uh, student politics really is, is non-existent as, as far as I saw. I did have a few very interesting conversations with individual students, though, and that was when I heard a bit of dissenting kind of views, which they had to talk about in hushed tones and things like mm. that. But that whole aspect is just removed as well. Mm. So, yeah, that was interesting. Sorry, can I read a message from a listener um, making the following observation? Regarding food safety, a while ago, executives of a baby food producer were executed for lacing milk powder with melamine. Wow. Now, remember that melamine... Um, sort of crisis. It was it, it yeah. was it was quite huge. I, I can't remember whether what the outcome was, as the listener says it was. It sounds it was, like heads were rolled. Yeah, literally, and, and that's what happens yeah. when somebody messes up. Heads roll, and uh, so it's it's quite meritocratic in that sense. Mm. But also, if you do something wrong, there's a huge cr- um, thing. And now it's a bit of a joke is that people love to go to Hong Kong. Mainland Chinese love to go to Hong Kong to buy uh, milk powder. And you always, there was for a long time, like these regulations, you can only take two bags of milk powder when you come across the border from Hong Kong. So the the result of that is still felt today. Mm. But again, it it almost brings the conversation back to, and I was going to ask you this as the next question. Um, When you're in China, do you feel a palpable sense of the state is watching you? Do you feel an Orwellian sense of 1984? The state is watching, it's listening, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an interesting one because I felt that. Yeah. I mm. felt that for a couple of reasons. Mm. The first was there's cameras everywhere. Basically, oh. the only place where you're not being watched by a camera, I would say, was inside my room or mm. probably inside my bathroom. Um, there are cameras just about everywhere, sure. and, and there are various reasons for that. Now, you know, the sort of the, the positive side of that, uh, people will say, is that if something bad happens, if you get mugged or something, which is very unlikely, it's a very safe country, mm. they can immediately just check it on the camera, and they know exactly who the person is. They'll catch them within a few hours. But for me, you know, I really wasn't used to that. I wasn't used to being watched. I wasn't used to sort of having my privacy invaded. And so that was something I sort of struggled a little bit, and it began to sort of affect me a little bit. So that mm. was just an, a way of life that I wasn't used to. But I think for most Chinese people, that's just how things are, mm. you know. So, yeah, that's one difference. In South Africa, I, I feel quite free in the sense of the incompetence they yeah, can't do wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, the, and the threat of violence. Um, but, I mean, I, I want to dig in on this one because um, for a while, I think last year, I, I was also part of this this outrage mob, uh, so to speak, um, when videos started surfacing of the proposed social currency or social so capital credit, credit yeah. system in, in China, quickly talk to us about that, and because we'll have you back definitely on the show to go into this in more detail. But in in light of you feeling watched, did you have that um, notion of of being watched by someone for a credit system, so to speak, in the back of your mind? Yeah, I, I kind of knew about that, and that's one of those things where, like, I, actually, I think if you Google it, you you won't find much on the details except for sort of investigative journalists from Western uh, news outlets who have like done the research into this kind of thing. But what I'd say is that things like that are kind of known by the Chinese populace. And mm. so it, it just kind of makes them behave. But uh, sort of the real effects of that are, are often cases, for example, when people don't pay back their debts, mm. then you can't buy a train ticket because if you want to buy a train ticket or a plane ticket, you have to use your ID. And they say, oh, sorry, this ID has not paid back its debts. And so there were like real effects like that if you mess up. And, and yeah. 
That's, re- that's really dystopian. I mean, that, that, that is the, uh, the ideal communist state. Yeah. But, but just, just to put it in perspective, I'm, and I also sort of felt a bit like that, but mm. then their sort of perspective on mm. it is, oh, but look, it means that pay- people will pay their debts yeah. and yeah. they get punished. It's just a, a good system for them. Nick, we are gonna, we're running out of time. Um, but remember, uh, firstly, thank you to you, Nick, for joining us on the show. And remember, Nick will be with us um, quite often on the show. As we look at China, I mean, it, this is one of the biggest trading partners in the world, uh, including ours. Uh, so we'll definitely have Nick on quite a lot. Remember, you can find Nick's writing and any of our colleagues from the Institute of Race Relations on the Daily Friend website. That's dailyfriend.co.za. And uh, all your news, analysis, and opinion on there, please do check that website out. And uh, thank you for listening to this insert. We will podcast it and will be made available to you and uh, we'll see you after this short break to talk to you about what to expect on the IRR show IFM 101.9 megahertz of life Welcome back to the IRR show. This is the five, uh, last five minutes, excuse me, of the show. And, um, yeah, you know, there's, there's quite a few things we, we sort of mentioned at the beginning of the show, sorry, that we, I want us to come back to. I think the EWC bill is what I actually had in mind. Um, right. and it's something I think people should be paying attention to because essentially what, what, what politicians in this country are now saying, yeah. um, especially, especially those from the ANC is that no, 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 no. We actually want to cut out the courts and judges yeah. when it comes to arbitrating whose land is is seized without compensation. And we want to be able to make this decision as politicians within the exec. Why is this a problem, Sorry, Let's set it out for us. Okay. The, the problem is that you have, you have three arms of government for a reason. And essentially the three arms act as a check uh, on each other. You have the executive which makes which uh, which ex- which administers all the decisions you have the legislature which makes the decisions um and checks how the keeps an eye on how the uh, the executive's doing and that, that's what the committees are in, in parliament for and and the third arm a bit separate from that is is the judiciary which makes sure which is supposed to make sure that anything that the government does in the way of law and legislation that is challenged you it can be heard through the process of the courts so that's that's very briefly what it does, and so the the, the judiciary really is 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 sort of the last redoubt. Yeah. If, if the other two houses or the other two uh, arms don't work properly, everything relies on the judiciary, and this is what we've been doing, notwithstanding uh, that it's a less than perfect situation as we discussed yeah. earlier. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I was about to say, just in the last sort of two minutes that we have, I think you have something you need to read over there? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, and it's as follows. Uh, through Chai FM, you connect to the world, to Israel, and to the global listening community. But now you can connect to the heart of the station. Download our free app to listen live. Contact the studio, office, or helpline at one touch. Find it on the Google App Store. That's Chai FM, capitals C-H-A-I-F-M and just look for the logo. The Chai-FM app is brought to you by Binary Headquarters. All right, guys. Um, first things first, thank you very much to all of you who, is, who have listened to the show. Remember, we come to you every Tuesday at between 9 and 10 as we bring you news, opinion, and analysis and wonderful interviews like you had today with Nicholas Babaya. My name is Big Daddy Liberty. Remember, you can find me on social media. Look for any of my social media feeds, whether on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. And you can see what I'll be talking about for the week. But, uh, Sarah, as we maybe close the show off, Mm-hmm. Um, 
very briefly, what do you think we should be looking out for in the news cycle in the week to come? Well, I think the EWC proposed in ANC amendment is going to gather traction because the, t- the closing date, I think, for the submissions on the bill is the end of this week. So there's going to be a lot of heat and I'm not sure a lot of light generated out of this. Um, and it will become an ongoing discussion point and area of challenge. I think there's going to be more pick-up on the, on the Zwele Mkise niece appointment. I Absolutely. think that, that, that is inevitable. <laughs> Maybe there'll be another tragic case of the drowning of a child at a high school for, um, for the MEC of, of Education Gauteng to get involved with. The, 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 and that, the tragedy there is that this is the time of the year when, when kids go on camps with their schools. Yeah. And I think they broadly should be very, very good experiences, but yeah. they have to be extremely well managed. And I notice that it's, you know, it's suddenly the, the, the environment is, is alive to these issues and to these events, and, and past events haven't picked up the traction, but now you're going to pick up the traction and you're going to see the problem. The other thing in May, that may still be on is the Gauteng Department of Education's online application system, mm. which becomes more and more controversial each year in either not coping with the load or not appropriately placing people in the right school. So I think that has possibilities as well. And then, of course, we're heading towards uh, the the State of the Nation address Mm. in in February, the downgrade and and the budget. And I think there's going to be a lot of discussion leading up to those. Absolutely. Sorry. Thank you very much. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. Remember, you'll find us on The Daily Friend. That's dailyfriend.co.za. I'm your favorite fat boy, Big Daily Liberty. We will see you next week on the IRR Show.